And in Luke 10, if you turn there, Luke 10, verse 25, we find the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, with time, some parables end up morphing a bit in our culture. And today, when you hear the parable of the Good Samaritan, you typically think of, you know, a person who stops and changes a tire for somebody on the side of the road. Or perhaps, you know, when I was a kid, my grandparents had a motorhome. And I remember on the back of their motorhome, they had the Good Sam sticker, which meant that if, and, and it was like this nice guy with a halo over his head, you know, kind of a thumbs up type of a uh, persona about him. But that meant that, hey, if you were in, in hard times or, you know, had trouble on the side of the road, they were going to stop and they were going to help you out. And amen for all of that. But that actually, interestingly, is not the real emphasis of the parable that Jesus tells us here. And here's what's interesting is that most parables have one main point that they're trying to get across. Uh, this parable does for sure. And whenever you're looking at parables, it's a good thing to try to look at what's the main point that Jesus is trying to teach us through this parable, rather than turning it into what's called an allegory. An allegory would, would be where something, everything in the parable represents something else. And for example, uh, Bunyan's Progress, which is a very famous and classic Christian work, that is an allegory. Everything in that story represents something else. And there's a temptation with Jesus' stories to try and do that. As a matter of fact, throughout church history, especially as we get into the Middle Ages, there came to be what known as the fourfold sense of Scripture. And people would interpret the Bible on four levels of interpretation. Number one was the literal translation, and to really be able to grapple it and understand what it meant to that original audience who heard it. Number two was the ethical, or what was the ethical demand being placed upon us, who now hear it, even though we weren't in the original audience. The third was the mystical. Was there some sort of kind of spiritual transcendent meaning that was escaping us? And the fourth was the allegorical, where they would take everything in the story and make it represent something else. Now, things went crazy during that time. It really did. Because suddenly, if everything represents something else, some, sometimes, for example, when uh, some of the Old Testament stories, if, if for example, uh, Abraham is just simply entertaining guests from out of town, well, that's about you know, him entertaining, they were angels, about him entertaining angels. It doesn't mean that his doorstep represented the gates of heaven. It does, I mean, his doorstep was just a doorstep. His house or his tent where he was going to give hospitality was just hospitality. The bread that Sarah baked for them was just bread. It wasn't Jesus to come. It wasn't all that. You know, as, as Groucho Marx once said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. And, and we've got to stop trying to kind of force so much into Scripture when there's more than enough in what Jesus tells us here to, to really be able to be astounded by it. So, having said all of that, let's look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Said another way, a lawyer. A lawyer. Uh, but his law book, instead of being the you know, Virginia statutes, is instead the Old Testament. And not only the Old Testament, but also some of the Talmudic or Mishnaic teachings that surrounded it, and he had become an expert in that. 
He wanted to see how Jesus was going to do. And typically, as we get into this section of Scripture heading towards Jerusalem, he's also looking to maybe try and trip up Jesus and see if there's maybe a chink in the armor here in this guy's teaching so we can discredit him out of jealousy. So this expert in the law comes up to Jesus and he wants to test him. That's not a good thing. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's not asking this out of humility. In, I mean, this is, a, this is a man, again, trying to see if he can entrap Jesus. So, Jesus realizing this, wise enough to realize, I'm going to turn this back on him. And he answers a question with a question. What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and... Love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Live is a euphemism, meaning you will have eternal life. Uh, to, to, to live is often equated with that very idea of salvation or life eternal. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now this phrase, justify himself, is not in the same vein as, for example, what Travis just mentioned, you know, the great concept of being justified by faith in Christ Jesus. No, no, no. He's not looking for that. He's looking to justify himself. That is, he's looking to promote his own self-righteousness. And he's also trying to get a one-up on Jesus a bit in this idea of showing his righteousness. Again, in the original language, dikaiosune, justify and righteous are the same word, basically. So, he is looking to, in a sense, qualify what Jesus is saying and feel good about himself all at the same time. And so he wants to say, then he, he does that by saying, all right, Jesus, smart guy, who is my neighbor? And now, here comes the parable. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And just as a side note, how sweet is Jesus? Like, who as a parent wouldn't love to be able to just, like, have an awesome story every time your kid has a very interesting question for you about God? And I'm sure after a while they'd be like, oh, again with the story. But this is, this is such a... I, I, over and over again, here he is with just the most brilliant crafting of communication to be able to not only convey truth, but bring about conviction all at the same time. You go, Jesus. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's not that this is a north-south thing so much, although it is. It's that Jerusalem is about maybe 2,300 feet above sea level, and Jericho is next to the Dead Sea, or down in the uh, Jordan Valley, heading to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is one of the lowest places on earth, 1,300 feet below sea level. There's over 3,000 feet of elevation, and they're not too far apart from one another, less than 20 miles apart, Jerusalem and Jericho. It is a day's work, day's walk, but the day's walk is from a very high elevation to very low elevation. Whenever you're driving through, let's say, West Virginia, and you're trying to make your way through elevation changes, you notice that the road is not so straight, right, when you go through those places. Debbie's keenly aware of every road that's not very straight, as she gets carsick, and you know, has, has a, uh, a clear mind of make sure that we don't go through you know, that road that goes through the mountains. But whenever you're going from high elevation to low elevation, the road has to traverse 
back and forth quite a bit to be able to accommodate a somewhat uh, flattened path, especially if you have carts or animals, even on foot, to be able to accommodate this. So this road, which was called the the Red Way or even the the, um, the the Murder Way, I mean, it was a very dangerous road, as it says here. But part of the reason it was so dangerous is that it wound back and forth and had many, many blind alleys and blind turns along the way where if you were up to nefarious ideas, you could pounce upon someone and, you know, in a sense, mug them along the way. So, um, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. By the way, if you're sitting in the first century and you hear this story, you would also think, that guy's an idiot. You don't go down that road. I've been down that road, he, you know, the, the audience would say. You don't go down that road by yourself. And especially if this is the lawyer listening to this, he's thinking to himself, that guy's an idiot. Whatever is happening to him, he had it coming to him. Good for him. Maybe he'll learn his lesson from going down that road by himself. Idiot. Okay? So that's in their mind. When he, when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, a priest would ordinarily need to make sure that he remains clean. One of the prohibitions of a priest is to not go near a dead body, or he would be precluded from serving in the temple. One of the great things that he gets to do. You only get to do it about two weeks out of the year. It's your turn to be able to go in there and serve in any different capacity at the temple. However, he's not going to Jerusalem. He's going from Jerusalem. He's going down the road. So he's leaving Jerusalem at this moment. So he doesn't have like the great excuse of, well, I need to be serving in the temple. That's a pretty big deal. I need to make sure that I don't go near the dead body or I get cooties. And if I got cooties, I can't be doing my temple stuff. Right? But, but again, maybe the lawyer would be like, well, maybe he has some sort of sacred duty to do somewhere else and, and he ought to get away from that guy anyway. Plus, the guy's an idiot. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Uh, a Levite would also be the set-apart tribe of Israel. It's from the Levites that the priests are chosen and it's from the Levites that they also have special duties of taking care of, of, the, of the temple and different worship. And so likewise, the Levite could be justifying to himself why it is that he needs to be on the other side. And also, if he's a Levite, the, the thought is that Levites were wise. And the Levite, likewise, could have made sense of the situation by saying, you know what, this happens a lot. The robbers hang, you know, waiting to pounce. And what they do is they put out somebody as bait, looking like they've been beat up and half dead. And you walk over, and you try to take care of them, and oh, they, they then get you. So, I'm going to be wise. I'm not going to go near that bait that they've set out there for me, because I don't want to be pounced on as well. And so, again, the lawyer hearing the story is thinking, you know what, that was probably smart of the Levite. If he's traveling alone, that's not such a good thing. But at least he's being really careful about any of these traps that might be set for him. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan. And as the lawyer's hearing this, he's thinking to himself, for sure, okay, good. Now the bad guy enters the picture. 
I wonder what the Samaritan is going to do. And in his mind, he's probably thinking, I bet the Samaritan is going to go and see if there's anything left on the guy that he can take. Because the Samaritan doesn't even care about, about being unclean. And since he doesn't even care about being unclean, godless guy that he is, he'll probably take the rest of the guy's clothes and not leave him half naked, but leave him fully naked, disgraced and shamed. I bet that's what's going to happen here. And, you know, I don't think I'm exaggerating. That probably would be the mindset of the lawyer as he's hearing Jesus tell the story. However, here's where Jesus gives the little bit of the whammy reversal on him. It says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii. That's two days' wage. Think about how much you get paid in a day. And you're going to take out two days' wage. This is not a dollar for the guys outside of 7-Eleven. This is two days' wage that you're providing. And you give it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus looks at the lawyer straight in the eye and says, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. The real got you in this story comes with Jesus blowing the mind of this expert of the law, this lawyer. And what he was exposing in this man was not his selfishness to not to do good for those that are in trouble. What he was exposing in this man was his racism. And you notice his racism at the end because Jesus says, okay, which of the three? We had a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Which of the three was the neighbor, since you want to know what it is to really be a neighbor and who it is that qualifies as, as neighbor for all of the goodness that we should be doing as we love one another. And the man can't even say Samaritan. All he can say is, eh, you know, the one who would care to do that. And interestingly, Jesus says to him, all right, that man, you imitate him. You do what he does. You do what a Samaritan does. And that is the main point of this parable. The main point of this parable, and again, there, are, there, there is the ancillary idea that, yeah, we love, we love at all times. But if we're going to be holding back in our love, not loving to the fullest extent because we have prejudices, well, then we're not really loving. Yeah. And... If I were to have a title or a simple point for this sermon, it would be this. Like a good neighbor, reject segregated congregations. The whole New Testament rails against this idea of being okay with racism of being okay with prejudice, with being okay with segregation. All of the New Testament has a tension that runs through it of Jew versus Gentile and even Samaritan versus Jew versus Gentile. 
That was a test to see who would be a good Samaritan. I, of course, have to preach, so I can't go back there right now. You're all waiting for a lightning bolt. I know. It'll be good entertainment for you. We got the thumbs up. Amen. Um, The church in Ephesus, as an example, had a rift that was so deep. Almost all of the epistle that Paul writes, when you read it with the close examination of how he's looking for unity, his unity wasn't a general unity. His unity was between races. And in the end, he said, make every effort to make sure that you don't adopt segregation. Make every effort. And how do you do that? With complete humility, bearing with one another, and with gentleness. You make every effort. And you don't ever accept segregation because that's the lazy way out, the coward's way out, the hater's way out. And you just don't simply accept it. And I'm sure Martin Luther... Martin Luther King Jr., as he lamented the state of churches in America, was as on the money as he could be when he said, the sadness of American churches is that the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock on Sunday. And how do you end up? How do you end up in a community in which we live where we've got in our neighborhoods, in our schools... In our workplaces, a completely shuffled deck of every color that you can imagine. We live in an incredibly integrated place. You probably work in an incredibly integrated place. You probably go to school that is amazingly integrated. How ridiculous is it that amongst all of that integration, in your communities, in your homes, in your workplace, that all of that gets shuffled out and becomes segregation in the name of Jesus? How is that even remotely somehow justified? And it's ridiculous. I've said this plenty of times that if that has happened, somehow or another, the leadership of that congregation is okay with it. And has not tried to fight against it in the same way that Paul has charged us with fighting against it. And Praise God. I mean, you look around here, this is a shuffled deck to say the least. And amen that there's color blindness at, at every turn as, as much as, as, as we have it. And since there's such color blindness, the next generation is all beige, it seems like, in our congregation. As, you know. It's like all those colors are, are intermixing and won't be an issue. And, and, and do segregated congregations have fine-sounding excuses? Well, it's, you know, we have a different style, or historically, or whatever. Or, uh, yeah, they all do, whether it's white, or Korean, or black, or language, or whatever it might be. They all do, but nonetheless, they didn't make every effort. 
they, they broke with the spirit of the New Testament. For sure. For sure. And again, you know, I've kind of, kind of said this not so much tongue-in-cheek before, but if, but if you're here and, and you're saying to yourself, oh, but you know what? The church I go to is, is actually an all-white church. Or the church I go to is, a, is an all-black church. What are you trying to say? What are you trying to say to me about, uh, about me and my church? Say it. Well, I'm not trying to say. Come on. I'm not trying to say that you should walk away from that church. Please, 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 don't get me wrong on that. That, that would not be appropriate at all. No. I'm saying run. Yep. <laughs> run away. Run away. Because at this point, it is so ingrained and it's such an accepted tradition that you can't even see again of what it is to make every effort to really strive for unity. And my goodness, there's more than enough cultural expressions for us to be able to enjoy the backgrounds of our culture. I, I'm first generation American. I love all that Lithuanian stuff. But trust me, I'm not going to go to a church that's a compromise of Christianity, which I did all my youth, by the way, because it's all Lithuanians. Right. We had an awesome basketball team, though, let me tell you. <laughs> However, what, what is that when, when I'm looking at something that transcends the silliness of my background and my culture? Am I proud of it? Do I love it? Do I want my kids to know about it? Am I going to help them? Yes, I am. But it ain't going to get in the way of Jesus Christ. And we, we got we to gotta take this as seriously as Jesus takes it. And, and if you have any issue with this, I challenge you to read the book of Acts. To read the book of Ephesians. Even to read how purposefully, over and over again, Jesus presents Gentile situations to the Jews just to see them get riled up and make sure they realize... That is not going to happen here. Oh, no, you didn't. We're going to keep this thing together. White, black, Gentile, Jew, Korean, Hispanic, you name it. This is not going to be separated because we feel more comfortable one way or another. And that is, that is the main point of this parable. The bam at the very end of this parable is when the word Samaritan comes off of Jesus' lips. It was a bomb dropped in the playground of those lawyers and those Jews. And they had to deal with it. And in the end, so do we. But we can't ever be okay. And, and the reason that we're okay, or, or the reason that we would ever try to be okay with segregation, even, even in a, a church setting, cannot be justified by Jesus. Unless you want to twist them. Well, we're supposed to love one another. Well, you can apply that to anything. Right? I mean, can you, I mean, even this passage is in love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what does he do with that statement here? He blows up segregation with, with, with that idea. You know, in, in the next couple weeks or months, you're going to have a temptation. And you're not going to do it in person, but you're going to do it on social media. And you're going to make comments maybe on Ferguson. You might make comments on different political elections. There's going to be... Um, Decisions that come down and they're going to be inflammatory. And here's what I'm asking you is that you rise above it. 
You rise above it. You're the peacemakers. You're the ones that, that, that promote a color blindness. You're the ones that live for principle rather than pigment. That, that you're the ones that, that really do live for the kingdom of God rather than any sort of corner dominion that anybody's trying to claim here on earth. We've done it, by the way. And I'm not afraid to kind of like, you know, beat our chest and say, we've done it. We are colorblind. It is for sure the case. Uh, you know, Zach is, is going to be home in a couple weeks. And I remember when we were uh, coming home from church when he was a little kid. And in the backseat of the car, uh, he and another kid, you know, you, you, you learn a lot as you, you drive. And you have friends come home with you in the car because then your kids finally talk. They don't talk, of course, to you. But, but they, they, you know, they talk to their friends. And, um, and as they were coming home, I, I, heard, I heard Zach say, oh, yeah. I know, I saw that movie too. Yeah, I, I hated those colored people. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? What? What? And you know, I didn't say it like that. I was like, so, colored people, eh? What, what of these colored people? And, and uh, why is it that you have a, a strong dislike for these colored people? And he goes, oh, because in Power Rangers, when the ship came down... <laughs> And then out of the ship, you know, there were these people, and they were like purple and orange and all of these colors. And I was like, oh, yeah, I hate those colored people, too. But I was like, oh, my goodness. But, you know, he had, he had no concept. And, and the reason that I asked him, I was so shocked, is because earlier that week, he, he got taken out of a soccer game. And the reason he got taken out of soccer game, he got kicked really hard. And it was kind of like a, a dangerous play in soccer. Um, there actually are dangerous plays in soccer. And, and, uh, and they had to take... <laughs> I meant that in the nicest way possible about soccer. But anyway, they, they took him to the sideline. Of course, I'm the hovering helicopter parent. I'm like, what happened? What happened? Like, who did that to you, son? And... And, uh, and he's like, oh, that, that, that kid out there with the, with the purple shoelaces on. I'm like, I don't see anybody with purple shoelaces. He goes, yeah, and he also had purple um, shin pads, too. And I was like, I don't, I don't see that. He goes, he, he had his shirt untucked. You know, you're supposed to have your shirt tucked. He had his shirt untucked. So he went through all these different things. But, but here's the deal, is that it was actually a kid who was black. And, and he didn't say, he didn't say the black kid. Matter of fact, it never even came up. It never even came up to him. And I, and I was like, wow, amen, that, that this generation, growing up as we do, color blindness, and how often do you forget somebody in, in the fellowship and you think, oh, yeah, I remember him, and you get their color wrong completely. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny, like, oh, my goodness, I, I was so wrong. I was so wrong. But it just doesn't seem to matter. But, but, but praise God, we could be at such a place. But don't take that for granted. And, and there may come a day where there might be tensions. My goodness, we've risen above that. Make sure that there's nothing that comes close to that. And on a side note, as we're in, as we're in a mode of loving everyone, anyone, anyhow that we can, I'm going to put in just a side note here. Because when Jesus, Jesus is asked, okay, so how do I love my neighbor? He doesn't say think well of them. He doesn't say have nice sentiment for them. He says go and do something for them. He says go and do likewise. When, when the man answers correctly, Jesus says, do this and you will live. Not hold to this, not meditate on this, not even preach this. Do this and you will live. You know, we have opportunities to do right by people who are hurting. And one of the biggest ones that we have 
is Nehemiah's Nook. We do it the first Saturday of, of every month, and we need to do better at that. I know that we're a busy church and we do a lot of things, and a lot of you, I mean, there are sometimes, I'm very encouraged, there are sometimes we have 40 of us that go down just from our group here. On a Saturday morning, 8.30, 8.45 in the morning, we stay till about 10.45, maybe 11. And, but it's an astounding thing. We serve a pretty good population of about 50 homeless people or more every first Saturday of every month. And it's astounding. But let's not just think well of them. Let's not just kind of have warm wishes for them. Let's do something about it. Make that part of your family's life. You can go down there as a family. We, we did it this last Saturday. It was so encouraging. Even there was more than a few families uh, from the congregation. Kids, parents, all that, that all went down. And we, we made them breakfast. We served. Terrell preached the word. We, but when there's a lot of us that go, we have a chance to sit down and have real discipling conversations. And I don't want to just go and put food in front of people. I want to sit and connect and love and talk to them. You can't do that when we're short-staffed. All we can do is just get the food out. If we're, if we're short staffed. But when there's lots of us, then many hands make light work, but also many hands allow us all to sit down and really love people the way they need to be loved, to be able to have a dignified, loving conversation where we connect with one another. But until we have the critical mass of people going every single time that we do this, we can't really bank on that. Commit to this. Commit to it. Yeah, is it a little bit of, a, of an annoyance? Yeah, not really. You can lose a little bit of sleep. Yeah, it's so encouraging, so fulfilling, and it's such an easy opportunity for us to go and do likewise. And on the same note, to do it on a global basis, really let's think about how we can help those that are in a really rough state. And, and next week when we come, just think of ways that we can be able to kind of gather together a bit and, and find you know, that little bit of extra before we spend it on the holidays to be able to help those through Hope Worldwide. So we'll have an opportunity for that next week. Amen? All right, let's go ahead and break to our groups. Thanks.